You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is the fourth part in our series on adventurer Freya Stark. Three notes for today. First, there is a map of Stark's travels on our website, explorerspodcast.com. Second, at the end of our last episode, I said that this chapter would be the final one in our series on Stark, but that is wrong. I will do one more episode after this. There was just too much stuff to cover, hence the extra episode. And final note, last time I finished up with Stark returning to Tehran and then heading back to Baghdad, where she plotted her next adventure. Well, that is incorrect. She did depart Tehran, but she stopped in Hamadan, which is where we will pick up our story today. It's not a big deal, but I wanted to make that correction. Anyhow, that is it for notes. Today, we are going to cover Stark's final two expeditions into Persia, and then talk about her rise to fame with the publication of her first book in 1934. So, last time, Stark had returned from northern Persia after becoming the first European to discover the lost assassin fortress of Lamsar. As noted, she had come back to Tehran and given British intelligence all of her maps. Everyone praised her for her exploits. She had again gone into the unknown mountains of northern Persia and returned to cheers and applause. It was in Tehran that she figured out her next expedition, a journey into Luristan, a mountainous region in western Persia. This was just a few weeks after finishing up her expedition in the north. Luristan was one of the least known areas of Persia. It was rugged and mountainous and filled with bandits. The Shah's police held nominal authority in the area, but in reality it was often the local Lurish princes who held sway. There had been a civil war in the area just a few years earlier, and tensions were still high. So why venture into Luristan? Well, Stark had noticed bronze relics for sale in the shops of Baghdad. These were old and valuable. They were known as Luristan bronzes, and a market for them had developed in the 1920s. Luristan bronzes are often small, intricately carved pieces, such as jewelry, pins, and spear tips. They can be quite beautiful, and they were produced two and 3,000 years earlier. Their makers were unknown, likely semi-nomadic people who moved with the seasons. The bronzes that they made were frequently practical, small, and light, important qualities to a people who moved often. These bronzes were believed to come from ancient graves in Persia, specifically the region of Luristan, hence the name. The local people in Luristan dug up these old graves for the bronzes and then traded them to dealers, who eventually got them to the markets in Baghdad and in other cities. The trade was technically illegal, as looting graves was forbidden, but such laws were mostly ignored. What was not ignored, however, were Westerners trying to get into Luristan to find the source of the bronzes. Those who had tried had been quickly booted out of the region. In fact, few Westerners had ever been to Luristan, which made such a journey really enticing to Freya Stark. She was convinced that her style of travel, going in with just a guide or two and working with the locals, would get her where she wanted to go. Most people thought she was crazy to attempt such a thing, but hey, it had worked before, so why not try again? So, Freya Stark's goal was to go into Luristan and locate some of these bronzes and bring back a proper scientific description of the graves that they were found in. As I mentioned last time, Stark was not concerned about looting graves. This was the 1930s, and that's what archaeologists did. It was all for science. As a note, Luristan bronzes are, today, still big business. You can even find them on sale on places like eBay. They can fetch hundreds, even thousands of dollars. A bronze sword in good condition from the era can cost tens of thousands of dollars. 
For this first expedition into Luristan, Stark tapped into her growing network of friends and colleagues to gain as much information about the area as possible. Her friends in British intelligence provided her with maps and intel, while others would give her advice on where to focus her searches and people she could call upon. This included a letter of introduction to the governor of northern Luristan in the city of Alishtar. I want to note that Stark didn't want to go see the governor of northern Luristan. She wanted to avoid government officials and police as much as possible. Those were the people who could potentially throw her out of Luristan or into jail. The letter was a safety net of sorts, something to show off if forced to justify her presence in the area. Freya Stark thus went from Tehran to Hamadan, reaching the latter city in early October 1931. There, she was introduced to several potential guides to take her on her journey. She chose a man named Haji because of his charming smile that featured a missing front tooth. The man's name is not recorded by Stark, and he is simply known as Haji, which is an honorific given to a Muslim who had completed a pilgrimage to Mecca called a Hajj. Stark would gather provisions and supplies and set out on horseback with Haji on October 6th. The two travelers headed west, towards the mountains that dominated the region. As they neared the city of Nauvand, Stark met a pair of French archaeologists who offered her lunch and a place to stay for the night. Next it was on to Nahavand, a city that sits at an altitude of 1,660 meters, or 5,500 feet. The mountains before them loomed twice as high as that. Here, Stark enlisted the help of a local Jewish doctor, Ibrahim, who took her to the market and gave her a good meal and a place to sleep. For a bed, the family pushed together a pair of sofas and covered them with silk quilts and pillows. The doctor's son wanted Stark to go to the police so they could help her on her journey, but she knew that would only delay things. Instead, she showed the doctor and his son her letter to the governor in Alistar, and that settled the matter. This letter, by the way, acted, Stark said, like an open sesame card. She said the letter was sealed, but just having it, and the governor's name on it, made people take note and move her along without incident. Few people wanted to question a person who was linked to a key government official. It just wasn't worth the hassle, so they smiled, nodded, and let her go. Stark was off the next day with Haji, aiming for the Verizon Pass, which rested at an altitude of about 10,000 feet, or 3,000 meters. People, by the way, were skeptical about Stark going south into Luristan. They said there had been fighting between the police and local bandits, and the Lurs were likely to kill anyone that they didn't trust. Stark, however, was not concerned about the local people. She had done this sort of thing before. She was more worried about the police. Stark and Haji headed up towards the mountain passes into Luristan. They rode their horses past women harvesting cotton, and men sowing the earth to plant opium. The two eventually reached the Verizon Pass, which was guarded by a small tower manned by the police. The passes in the Luristan had been a source of fighting, as various gangs tried to take control of them and extort money from those crossing the pass. Stark and Haji paid a toll to the police, which was higher than what the bandits had charged, and continued on. Once in Luristan, Stark did the things that she typically did. She befriended local people, both important and not so important. She had learned a long time ago that some of the best information that she gathered came from unlikely sources. Sitting around a fire was where she heard stories from men and women that might give her a clue to her search, something she would never find around the table of a government official born outside the area. As always, she gained the trust of the locals through patience, respect, and her ability to communicate directly with them. But this was not all accomplished without dangers. The people of Luristan, the Lurs, were tribal and deeply suspicious by nature. They especially distrusted the government due to the recent war. With each new tribe, she had to go through the motions to gain their trust. And so Stark would go about investigating old ruins and graveyards, trying to find Bronze Age burial sites. 
She even went to sites mentioned by ancient writers and poked around places that had been swallowed by the sands a thousand years earlier. Her quest for bronzes, however, yielded little. One big problem was that the graves she sought had already been looted, and so she moved about Luristan investigating places based on her own instincts and the advice of the locals. Now, Stark had always known that one of the biggest challenges facing her was going to be the Shah's police. A few days into her jaunt into Luristan, her efforts to avoid contact with them were thwarted when the region's chief of police caught up to her. The man gets no name, and he's simply called a Sardar, which is a title for someone of importance. The man listened to Stark, looked at her documents, including the sealed letter to the governor, and announced that he would escort her to Alistar. This was not what she wanted. I mean, it's hard to dig up local graves with the town cop right behind you, but it was better than being let out of the area or landing in jail. The presence of the police certainly cramped Stark's style going forward, but she managed to charm and cajole and plead with the Sardar to continue her searching for the Luristan bronzes. Sadly, her searches were turning up little. The places that she went to simply weren't the sources of the bronzes. And so, with her police escort in tow, Stark and Haji reached the city of Alistar. There was a fort there, which served as the residence of the governor of northern Luristan. The governor, she was informed, was ill with malaria. Thus, Stark was introduced to Karim Khan, whose brother, Mir Ali Khan, had, as Stark puts it, ruled the area like a king until about three years ago. Mir Ali Khan had been tricked by government officials, captured, and hanged. Karim Khan is described as a young, charming man who liked to smoke opium. He still held an important position as a tribal leader in the area and had many enemies due to all the fighting he had been a part of the past few years. He welcomed Stark and in time took her to meet the governor. In that meeting, Karim Khan told the governor a story about Stark's visit, making stuff up as he went, to minimize any sort of threat she might pose. This greatly impressed Freya. Stark rested in Alistar for a few days, taking the time to eat some good food and enjoy a hot bath. The city was the most modern in the area and had a school, plus a square mud-brick fort with round towers. When Stark asked about the old graves she sought, she was pointed towards Dilthan to the northwest. She wanted to continue her journey to that area, to which she was given permission. However, there was a catch. The local officials refused to let her go forward without an escort, and thus the chief of police, the Sardar, and five armed men on horseback joined her and Haji when they departed Alistar. Again, this was not ideal, as it would make her searches awkward as Stark knew the local people, who she needed for inside information, tended to shut her out if she had government police right next to her, but in the end, she accepted the deal. Stark thus headed towards Dilthan, her police escort with her. Kareem Khan joined her as well. As noted, the locals were no fans of the police who would scold the native people and order the men to abandon their traditional dress for a more modern European style of clothing, something the Shah and Tehran wanted to help modernize the territory. This, of course, only made the people resent the police even more. Thankfully, the chief of police was tolerant of Stark's interest in grave sites, as long as it didn't upset the locals or violate Muslim tradition. Digging up a Muslim grave was forbidden. You could generally identify a Muslim grave because it was pointed towards Mecca. And so Stark continued northwest, conducting her archaeological digs along the way. She generally tried to befriend the locals, find out where the oldest graves and cemeteries were located, and offer payments to people who found a grave that fit what she was looking for. For the most part, Stark struck out on her quest for the bronzes. The graves she investigated were not that old. She found some pottery and a few bronze pieces, but not much else. One time she found a beautiful jar, which fell to pieces when she picked it up. She also bought some bronze pieces when she got the chance. 
The journey proved to be disappointing. Stark went to the region of Dilfen and then continued on towards Harson, investigating cemeteries and old ruins whenever possible. Stark and Haji even reached a point where the police refused to continue with them due to the unruly area. Stark went on for a spell, but eventually judged it wise to call it a day and rejoined her police escort. The graves she was looking for were simply not in these areas, or they had already been looted. She found plenty of sites that had been dug up by gangs who, when they found a site, would swoop in and dig it up in no time. As Stark approached Harson, Kareem Khan took his leave. He was no longer in the lands of his tribe, and he said that he would be shot dead if he went any further. Stark gave him her code as a thank you for his assistance and bade him farewell. After that, she entered Harson with her police escort. She gave the police Sardar her watch, which he had admired, as an acknowledgement of his service. Luristan was now behind Freya Stark, for now. Three days later, she was in Baghdad. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Hey, explorers, it's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The return of Freya Stark added to her growing legend. No, she had not found the source of the Luristan bronzes, but she could now tell stories about finding the lost castles of the assassins, trying to climb Solomon's throne, as well as traipsing about the mysterious mountains of Luristan. She could toss in near death by malaria, digging through graves, bandits, and a hundred other exotic and thrilling details. People loved her. In Baghdad, Stark worked to put her adventures onto paper for publication. At the same time, she took a job writing for the Baghdad Times for 20 pounds a month. She was the only woman journalist on the staff. She brought a new and welcome viewpoint to the paper. She wrote a column called Baghdad Sketches, stories from her point of view about her time in Iraq and the Middle East. These articles were later compiled into a book. Her friendship with Captain Vivian Holt of British Intelligence gave her a unique source as a journalist. However, the captain continued to confound her. She was interested in the tall officer, but he gave off mixed signals, being friendly and charming one day, then aloof the next. Of course, as I mentioned previously, Holt was probably gay. No matter, she spent 1932 in Baghdad until the late summer, 
when she was introduced to an 18-year-old boy from Luristan named Hassan. The young man brought her a wild tale, and it will be the source of our next adventure. Hassan claimed that his father was the chieftain of a small tribe in Khyber Ka, which was in an unsurveyed part of Luristan. His father told Hassan that a tribesman had shown him a sack full of jewels and daggers, which had been discovered in a cave in the mountains, along with twenty chests of treasure. He had given Hassan a map to the treasure. Hassan needed a trustworthy European to help him get the treasure out of Persia, and someone had referred him to her. Now, treasure stories were a dime a dozen in the Middle East, and if someone found even a single coin in the mountains, it would set off a rush of speculators. By the way, Hassan's story sounds a lot like the 1930s version of a Nigerian oil scam email. Now, Hassan's story had a sense of urgency and danger, which Stark was attracted to. It seems that Hassan had shown his map to a friend, who had taken it to his father, who had seized it and put a claim on the treasure. He then threatened Hassan should he try and take it. Thankfully, Hassan had a copy of the map. Despite all the red flags in this story, Stark was intrigued. I mean, a treasure hunt. Who doesn't love a treasure hunt? And she knew that even if the treasure didn't exist, it was still a really good story. And what writer doesn't like a good story? Also, there was the really, 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 really small chance the story was true. People did find cool stuff in caves in the mountains. Why not Freya Stark? Now, there were some problems with Stark's proposed expedition. First, the teenager Hassan could not go with her. He was wanted by the police and needed a week or so to get travel documents. He would have to meet her in the area where the treasure was located, as the local people were his tribe. Second, due to unrest in Iraq, women were forbidden to travel outside of the four major cities. And third, getting into Persia and Luristan was dicey at best. Stark had previously gotten into Luristan from the west. The police there were not looking for treasure hunters from Baghdad, and the documents she carried had helped her move along without interference. She had no such aid for this expedition. Well, regarding Hassan, Stark would go without him. She actually preferred that, as she didn't really trust the kid. As for the no-traveling-for-women rule in Iraq, well, Stark had friends in British intelligence who could make that go away. They liked Stark's journeys. She brought back great intel. So another jaunt into the unmapped regions of Persia was something they were all for. Thus, they would get her to the border, but after that, she would be on her own. So, Stark got her expedition together, including hiring a pair of lures to help her get into Persia. This included her guide, a man named Shah Riza, who was from Luristan. He made quilts in Baghdad. Stark said that he had the aura of a philosopher. The other man was a hopeless opium addict, which makes it all sound like a road trip to a Grateful Dead show. Anyhow, Stark set out on our expedition in mid-September 1932. The first major step was crossing the Iraq border into Persia. The journey to the border went without incident, except for the fact that Shah Riza did not have a passport. Thus, a fake one was purchased ahead of time. Crossing the border was simple enough if you knew the right people. Shah Riza worked with his cousin, a man named Mahmud, who arranged for Stark to cross into Persia without anything more than a few quick questions. Mahmud would stick with the party. He was so concerned about robbers and bandits, he slept with a loaded gun next to himself at night. Stark said that he would wake up at the slightest noise. The actual crossing of the border at Bedra went without incident, and Stark and her team, mounted on mules, headed into Persia, aiming for Pushtika, a long high range, running northwest by southeast, like a wall. It went unbroken for hundreds of miles. The range rose up as high as seven and 8,000 feet, or more than 2,300 meters. Stark moved onward, traveling alongside the Great Ridge, and eventually heading up into the mountains. Along the way, there was a huge dust storm that raged for an entire night. 
Another thing about Stark's treasure hunt, she wasn't just going to look for Hassan's supposed cave of loot, she was also looking for Luristan bronzes. To find their source, or a grave with some of these relics, was still a goal for her. Stark and her company headed southeast into the mountains. As they went, she did her typical exploring, searching cemeteries and ruins. She engaged with the locals whenever possible to find if they had any clues to her searches. Many of the people that she encountered, especially those in the mountains, were so poor they had no meat, eggs, rice, tea, or sugar. They lived on flour, tomatoes, and cucumbers. Still, the code of hospitality held sway wherever they went, and even the poorest of the poor offered Stark a place to sleep and food to eat, no matter how meager. She tells stories of being given a bowl of soup to eat, and then realized the family had given her the only food they had in the home. The police she encountered, for the most part, asked her what she was up to, but waved her along. These were simple local law enforcement who weren't looking for trouble, but for the most part, Shah Riza avoided the police whenever possible. On the journey south, Stark would spend some time with the tribe of her guide, Shah Riza. At that point, they added another guide, a man from the neighboring Dusan tribe. Stark's expedition rode alongside a ridge called the Defile of the Unbelievers, which is such a cool name, I think I will have to use it as a place in a Dungeons & Dragons adventure with my friends. Anyhow, here Stark got the opportunity to poke around the ruins of the Castle of Shaddad, which was high up on the cliff. Stark insisted they march up to the castle, much to the chagrin of Shah Riza, who thought it far too dangerous. There was nothing much remaining of the castle, and Stark struck a deal with the local Dusanis to dig up some of the graves they had found and bring her any bronzes they discovered. With that, the company moved further south into the lands of the Lardi and Hindamini tribes. They were, Stark said, the oldest of the region's tribes, having retreated into these mountains ages ago. It was here that Stark came upon the ruins of the city of Larti. The Larti tribe now lived in tents in the shadows of the city's ruins. Here Stark looked around for some cool stuff, including graves to dig up. She was again disappointed. Stark and her team would move on. There would be more ruins, more graves, more natives to talk with. She usually offered to buy any bronzes they possessed or that they could find. In Lardy, at a place called Beni Parwar, she offered a bounty to anyone who found an intact skeleton in a grave. One was discovered, and Stark took the skull and wrapped it carefully in her jacket. She decided to take it back to Baghdad. It was not long after acquiring this skull that Stark was greeted with a new problem, the police. Three of them appeared on horseback. It seems they had heard of her wanderings, and they had come looking for her to investigate what she was up to. They had been tracking her for three days. The head policeman, a young man in a khaki uniform, simply known as the lieutenant, was suspicious. But Stark was able to ease his fears, essentially saying she was on an archaeological expedition. She even showed the police the skull she had acquired, saying it would go back to a museum where people who knew about such things would examine it. The lieutenant was ultimately satisfied with Freya's story, even if he was still suspicious. It just wasn't a common thing to find foreigners wandering in these hills. It helped that she and Shah Riza had passports, even if one was false. The lieutenant said Stark could continue her travels, but with a caveat. He would go with her. He said it wasn't safe for her to be wandering around these hills without a proper guard. And so, for the second time in a year, Stark was stuck with the police escort as she went around digging through the graves of Luristan. Grave robbing is a tough thing to do when the cops are right behind you. Plus, let us remember she was looking for a cave full of treasure. How would that play out? Well, Stark had no other option other than to roll with the changes. It was better than nothing. Stark would eventually reach the mountain where her hidden treasure supposedly existed. The boy, Hassan, by the way, was nowhere to be seen. 
her problem was that she couldn't just announce to everyone that it was time to go find the treasure cave on this sketchy map. She needed a reason or opportunity to go searching on her own. The cave was supposedly not far from some old ruins. Thus, it was to those ruins she said she wanted to go. And so off they went. It was here that Stark and her party would encounter some of the local bandits, who she was told could be found throughout the hills. As her party was trekking toward the ruins, a bandit was spotted, and one of the policemen took a shot at him. A chase ensued, but no one was injured or killed on either side. The bandits, Stark was told, were amateurs, likely driven to robbery due to hard times. Of the experience, Stark said, quote, I cannot say that I felt anything except a pleasant exhilaration, end quote. At lunch, while everyone was relaxing, Stark made her move to go find the hidden treasure. She wandered off alone, as she was known to do, saying she was going to go look around for the ruins. When she was out of sight, she pulled out her treasure map. Stark followed her map, but when she came to where the X marked the spot, Indiana Jones referenced there, she found nothing. No cave, no treasure. She looked around some more before giving up her search and rejoined her party before they came looking for her. Interestingly, one of the policemen mentioned there was a big mountain cave not far off. She asked the man if he had been there, and he said yes, and he added there was nothing in the cave. So much for 20 chests of loot. Her treasure hunt was officially over. At this point, Stark wanted to enter an area called Lakistan to go looking for more graves, but the police lieutenant gave her a firm no. They would not go there, and they would not let her go alone. It was far too dangerous, and thus it was time to head back to the border. However, there were other adventures and experiences along the way. But in time, her party would reach the capital of the area called Pustakol, which only three years earlier had been a moving city of tents. When Stark arrived, it was four or five streets along with some government buildings and shops. It was called Husseinabad. Here, Stark met with government officials who asked what she was doing and where she had been, things like that. She described it as an interrogation disguised as a conversation. After that, she was brought to the regional governor, a tall young man in a khaki uniform. He was amused and impressed by Freya Stark, saying, quote, No wonder that yours is a powerful nation. Your women do what our men are afraid to attempt. End quote. Stark appealed to the governor for permission to visit the lands of Lakistan to continue her archaeological digs, but he told her that she would need to write to officials in Tehran. From his tone, it was clear she would not get any such permission. Stark was dismissed, but she was not allowed to leave the city. No doubt the local officials were sending word to Tehran, asking for guidance on what to do with her. In the meantime, she explored the town and the surrounding area, which was uninspiring. By the way, her lieutenant, who had guided her throughout much of the mountain country, was sick with malaria. After four days in Husseinabad, word arrived on the fate of Stark. She was to be escorted to the Iraqi border in the shortest way possible. And so Freya Stark headed back to the west, escorted by police to the Iraq border. She doesn't reveal the fate, if known, of the Persian lieutenant who had led her throughout the mountains of Luristan, but she does lament that she wasn't able to send him and his men some reward, as she found them pleasant, obliging, and honest with her. For this final leg of Stark's journey, she had an escort of four blue uniformed policemen, as well as a car, no more mules. By the way, the lurish teen who had prompted Stark to embark on the treasure hunt had been arrested for robbery and detained for a short time in Baghdad. He was never able to follow her. Stark found another interesting thing when she returned to Baghdad. It turned out that the rival treasure hunter had sent some men to watch the pass out of Persia and into Iraq with orders to kill Stark and her party if they had any treasure. However, she had returned by a different route and avoided them. Now, if this is true, no one really knows. This may have been Stark adding drama to her tale, 
but it made for some serious intrigue and no doubt was a great thing to talk about at a cocktail party. When she got back to Baghdad, Stark gave the skull she had collected to a museum, which was put on display, and soon there were rumors she had found treasure, including golden skulls. Too bad that wasn't true, but she did come back with some great tales and some new maps. It was all good, even if there were no bronzes or sacks of treasure. This takes us up to January of 1933. Freya Stark was 40 years old. She had endured lots and lots of hardships, including dengue fever, malaria, dysentery, influenza, and more. But she was now an experienced and respected explorer, traveler, geographer, and writer. She was wiser and more confident. She knew Arabic and Persian. It was time, she decided, to head back to Italy to see family. And speaking of family, Stark's niece, Angela, had died that month at the age of 15. Perhaps it was her death that had spurred Stark to return to Oslo, where she was greeted by her mother and her family friend, Herbert Young. After her reunion with friends and family, Stark then found out that she had been given the Back Memorial Prize by the Royal Geographical Society in London. She was only the third woman in history to receive the award. For Freya Stark, the time was ripe for her to capitalize on her growing fame. The world was enthralled by discoveries and adventures such as hers. Archaeology was a big deal, nothing more so than the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun a decade earlier. And so, after a respite in Italy, Stark was off to London. She did interviews with the BBC and major newspapers, and made the rounds amongst London's high society. When it came time to receive her award, she was praised by the president of the society, William Goodenough. And yes, his surname is Goodenough. Anyhow, he said this of Stark, quote, We recognize that you travel alone, with no great regard for your own safety, and without troubling officials too much on that account. We have profited greatly by your literary talent, and the attention you have paid to getting accurate transcripts of the names along your routes, contributing to the correctness of our maps. End quote. For Freya Stark, she was in all her glory, standing in the footsteps of her heroes, such as Richard Francis Burton. And people loved her. She was offered the opportunity to give a series of lectures on her adventures, and crowds filled the room each time. At first, Stark was nervous about talking in public, but she stuck with what she knew. She was polite, courteous, and honest, and wildly entertaining. It turns out that she had a gift for public speaking. Of her talks, one person said, quote, She sort of lifts one into another world. End quote. Freya Stark was a celebrity. She packed the lecture halls, and it all brought her new friends and contacts. She found herself walking amongst the most powerful people in Europe, politicians, royalty, heads of state. She was now seen as an expert on the Middle East. People solicited her opinions on such things. And Stark was good at it all. She knew how to play the game. She was patient, polite, and courteous, as well as smart and insightful. That combination of qualities made her shine. Now, it was at this time that Stark would also be introduced to some other important people that would be instrumental in her career. The first was Sidney Cockrell, the director of the Fitzwilliam Museum of Cambridge University. Cockrell was 67 years old and was one of those behind-the-scenes sort of people. He wasn't famous to the general public, but he was extremely important. Cockrell had nurtured friendships and relationships with people from all walks of life for decades. Essentially, if he thought you were interesting, he wanted to talk with you. He loved to write letters, and people would write back to him. He corresponded with people such as Kipling, Tolstoy, T.E. Lawrence, Bernard Shaw, and now Freya Stark. The two would write each other for decades, and those letters provide a look into Stark's life. The other person I'll mention is publisher John Murray. Murray had worked at Cornhill Magazine, where Stark had gotten her start as a writer. Now he ran a publishing house and took her on as a client. 
Her first book, The Valleys of the Assassins, came out in May of 1934. Note the plural in valleys. I had previously called the book The Valley of the Assassins, when it is actually The Valleys of the Assassins. Just wanted to point that out. Anyhow, the book would be a huge success, coming out to rave reviews. It made Stark a worldwide star. The book was funny, insightful, detailed, and never stodgy. It was reprinted three times within six months. It would be the first of 30 books in her career. Sidney Cockrell would send a copy of the book to T.E. Lawrence, who read the book and wrote back, saying, quote, She unfolds herself as a remarkable person. It is astonishing how the book takes life. End quote. The next year, Stark received the Burton Memorial Medal, only the fourth person to ever get the award and the first woman to ever be honored. Now, I want to mention two things before we wrap up today's episode. First, it was at this time that Stark underwent cosmetic surgery to address some of the physical scars that remained from the horrible accident she had suffered as a child. At age 12, she had had half the hair and skin torn off one side of her head. Nearly 30 years later, it still caused her physical pain. The scars were a reminder of a horrible trauma, as well as the inadequacies she felt because of the damage. I said this in an earlier episode, and that is that Stark always lamented her looks, much of this attributed to the accident. All of her life, she felt she wasn't quite pretty enough. It made her, in some ways, feel inadequate. And thus, Stark underwent surgery just before her 41st birthday, and in the end, she was happy with the results. She went to Italy to recuperate with family. The second thing I want to mention is about Stark's relationship with Vivian Holt, the stodgy British officer she had been fixated on for the past seven years. Stark had been hoping for years for a marriage proposal from the man, and when none came, she pressed the matter and professed her love for him. What his exact reply was, we don't know, but the answer was not what Stark wanted. Of Holt, she would say she had been, quote, walking down a one-way lane with only a blank wall at the end, end quote. Stark felt humiliated and bitter, feeling like she had wasted seven years chasing a man who wouldn't, or couldn't, love her the way she wanted. The two would remain acquaintances, maintaining a polite correspondence for the rest of their lives. And that, my friends, is where we will leave things for today. Freya Stark had risen to the heights of fame, only to be punched in the gut yet again in her quest for love. So, next time, we will finish up our series on Freya Stark. We will cover her expeditions to Yemen, her service in the Middle East in World War II, and then look at the rest of her life and her legacy. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's story. Take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows. If you are looking for news podcasts, there are shows from the New York Daily News and the Dallas Morning News. Enjoy. <laughs>